Welcome to the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, I'm Julie. And I'm Art. We're the hosts of the Places Where We Go podcast. Join us as we share our travel stories. We'll tell you about where we've been, what we saw, and what we did. We're always looking for a bit of an adventure. Sometimes we travel far. Sometimes we explore the places in our own local backyard. Wherever we go, we'll let you know about the highlights and top tips to help you plan your future adventures. This is the Places Where We Go podcast. All right, today we're taking you to the Churchill War Rooms with us in London, England. So this was a stop that was what I would characterize as our first popular tourist attraction when right. we were in London. And and it was very popular. And so before we left on our trip and we were trying to plan what to do, we consulted this book that we bought called DK Eyewitness Travel Guide to Great Britain. And I believe we'll have a link to that on show notes. And we were flipping through this before the trip, trying to think right. of when we're, if we're going to be in London for about a week, what should we do? And this is one that caught both of our eyes. Right. Yeah. Right. Very interesting, especially from the World War II history, because that interests me very much. Yeah. The Churchill War Rooms are a place where there are many stories to be discovered about Winston Churchill's time and his leading the British armies and military into World War II and trying to protect its people. It is an underground facility, and it is where uh, Winston Churchill and all his inner circle, the people that were planning out the war, spent a lot of time in very specific rooms that had certain functions in this underground facility. You can see really perfectly preserved rooms in this underground war room and communication rooms mm -hmm. and places where they bedded down and chart rooms. And there's just so many different rooms that you walk through that are basically untouched. Uh, I'm sure there are some things that they facilitate a little bit to make it look more like it's time, but we know for sure that the actual war room was untouched. Yeah, so I was thinking about this, I, and maybe there is something like this in the States, but I was not being able to recall to mind if we might have something in the United States that's similar, a place where a president might have convened with generals, et cetera, to work on war plans, et cetera, that's open to the public today. I mean... I've never seen a, th a place like that in the States. This is particularly extraordinary because it was during a time of war and they had to build the facilities to try to prevent total destruction from bombs that were falling from the sky from the enemy's airplanes. And so, end the damn war. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. There was that in mind when they did build the facility is that they had to try to reinforce it that if a bomb did fall on the building that was above it that it possibly would not create collapse mm -hmm. underground and destroy this facility that was used for planning the war yeah so i mean it's just really extremely fascinating when you think about what was going on back then the Germans were ramping up their military and their industrial clout, and the Brits began digging under Winston Churchill under this new public offices 
where there was a basement. So they went down into this basement underneath, and that's when they began to dig out and reinforce uh, what was underneath this building. It's located on the corner of Horse Guards Road and Great George Street. The complex has, like I said, just a whole system of rooms for sleeping, for communicating. They had to get a ventilation system put in. So if the top of this facility had gone to the ground, that they would still be able to get some kind of oxygen and air into the facility. And they finished it in August 27th of 1939 and it was five days later that Germany invaded Poland so the war had ramped up enough to where it was officially fully engaged and Germany was starting to take the land of Poland Mm -hmm. at this point Mm -hmm. which is very near and dear to our heart when we think about what happened to your parents Mm -hmm. at that time the purpose of the war room was of course to plan the next steps that would happen during the war and they plotted out things for all the military branches which would be the army the navy and they had very specific charting and specific maps within each room whatever the room was designated as and those charts and those maps still are there as they were back when the war ended so it was really extremely fascinating yeah so really interesting stuff to see it's really convenient to get to this place too when you're in london because it's within walking distance of some of the key sites so it's within steps of big ben and the houses of parliament we were coming from the west side of london so we got off on the tube at saint james stop and from there it was just a short walk to the museum during normal times, I believe the museum's open from 9.30 in the morning to 6 p.m., with the last admission at 5 p.m., and while I believe there's various types of tickets that one might be able to get, the standard adult ticket to get in is, is 23 pounds, and you can buy your tickets in advance, and mm-hmm. we would recommend that you I do suggested. so. Yeah. So. During our time in the UK, there's a lot of things that we just showed up to certain places and did when we got there. This is one of the places where we did get our tickets in advance. And I believe that there are timed tickets as well. So you not only get a ticket for the day, but it's going to tell you what time you're scheduled to to get in. And once you do get in, then they also offer the audio tour. So as you make your way through the facility, you can stop where you see the numbers press the corresponding number on your audio tour guide and you'll hear a description of what it is that you're seeing, which I find really helpful when you're in a a place like this so -hmm. that you really get an understanding of what it is that you're seeing. So we had waited in a line to get in. We got there a little bit early from our designated time. Mm -hmm. Because the early bird usually makes out better. Did you just make that up? Yeah. So we went in through the entrance, and on a large wall, there was an image of Winston Churchill, and there was a quote where he said, you ask what is our aim, I can answer you in one word, it is victory. The war rooms are almost exactly in the same condition that they were after the war had ended. You're literally transported through history as you visit each of the rooms as as you're walking through. It's amazing to see how everything really is kind of in its original state. I think that was one of the things that kept my interest the most is is knowing that these things were just 
left as is when the war was done. Yeah, to me, that was the interesting thing about this place. It wasn't just a recreation of something, which sometimes yeah. you will see in a museum. This was the place, and this was the... These were the facilities, the actual you know, materials that they used, from technology to reference items, where they sat, you know, the tables, mm -hmm. the chairs, it was all there. Mm -hmm. And this was the real stuff. It wasn't a recreation of we're going to try to make something look like what we think it looked like. Right. Yeah. And the actual war room was, they laid it out to look like it looked on Tuesday, October 15th, 1940, with the chair of Churchill at the head of the table. Mm -hmm. So it was recreated a little bit to look like what it might have been when they entered into the war room to discuss mm -hmm. uh, their next moves. On uh, becoming prime minister, Winston Churchill, this was in May of 1940, he visited the underground cabinet room and he proclaimed, this is the room from which I will lead the war. But he really generally did not like it. Yeah, he didn't like to spend a whole lot of time there, apparently. He, was, he wasn't good with no windows and, and no fresh air. He wanted to be outdoors. Yeah, and I think they had a bed for him there as well where he could spend the night if he so chose. And I believe he chose, not at to. least initially, not to do yeah, so. Yeah, he would go to often. 10 Downing Road yeah. or Street, 10 Downing Street. Mm -hmm. And that's where he chose to be. There was a point where I think he was kind of forced into um, staying there, but I, I don't think it was really something he chose right, himself. Right. Yeah, so as we were making our way through the cabinet war rooms, there was a display of a letter from Patrick Duff, who was the secretary at the Office of Works. And this was interesting because it talked about that there was a belief by Winston Churchill at one time that the place was bombproof and it would be protected from the ravages of bombs falling. But it turned out that the place was anything but that. And the letter mentioned that the place is not and cannot be made bombproof in any sense. Even though they had reinforced concrete, it was estimated that a direct hit by a bomb of anything over 500 pounds would have completely wiped out the bunker underneath. So... There were some engineers that were asked to make the site bomb-resistant, knowing that they couldn't really make it bomb-proof, and so they ended up putting some additional layers of concrete. And it turned out in October of 1940 that Number 10 Downing Street was severely damaged right. during an air raid. And it was at that time that Churchill began using these war rooms and the building above them, although this particular place apparently never took a direct hit. The... Uh facility itself, as you're walking through it, you could easily imagine what it must have been like um, when they were planning these sessions of World War II. What was their next thing to do? Where do they need to be? Where do they need to attack? Where are the Germans coming in from? Uh, where are the Russians coming mm -hmm. in from? There were so many things that they had to look at. And when I think about all they had was radio communication internet didn't exist. Mm -hmm. They didn't have satellites looking down upon, you know, certain parts of the earth and try to identify uh, any kind of movement from ships or they, none of that. And it's just fascinating to me that they could plan an entire war just mm -hmm. by that. Yeah, that and things like Morse code. When I see places like this, that is what fascinates me is you think about the way we communicate today and all this 
just phenomenal technology we have access to. And it's only in very, very recent history that we have that. And mm -hmm. as recently as World War II, people were making dots and you know long dots on a Morse code thing to yeah. try to convey messages. And getting killed for doing it. They would be caught yeah. and um, put on trial and, and uh, killed. Mm -hmm. The cabinet war rooms were used 24 hours a day. And it finally ended on August 15th, 1945, when they literally turned the lights off in the map room. And for the first time in six years, the staff kind of gradually dispersed from these underground rooms. After the war, much of the site was turned into new stores and offices, but... Above ground, I think. The yeah. above ground yeah. one that were above the basement area. Yeah. But this uh, really important rooms were preserved and mm -hmm. they weren't even touched. There's this gentleman by the name of George Rance. He stayed on as a caretaker. Mm -hmm. And after a 1948 press conference, he revealed that there was some of these secrets underneath this building. And he began to give tours. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how this started, this, this touring and the museum started. Yeah. And I can imagine there was quite a few people down there doing lots of different jobs mm -hmm. and how tight it must have been, especially if you're actually living in that uh, underground area because you had to man the radio or you had to uh, do, do the charting or take care of maps. And they were there 24 hours mm -hmm. a day for many years. And high pressure. This was mm -hmm. absolutely life and death work that they were doing there. Yeah, as we were walking around, and, and, and there was so much to see, one of the things that caught my eye, and it's based on what, what I do for my day job, so I run a reporting and analytics team, and today in our work we have, again, you know, access to this technology, so if people want to produce output from data, if you're in something like Microsoft Excel, you throw your data in there, you push a button, and you can get this chart, that chart, a pie chart, time series, etc. They didn't have any of that kind of technology back in World War II, but we're looking at these charts and tables mm -hmm. that were developed and produced during the war that were on the walls, and I could only imagine the manpower that it would have took to create those. So that's one of those things I think we take easily for granted today, how easy it is to manipulate, in this case, you know, numbers and data with technology. And again, something that only in very recent times in, in history that we have access to. But the fact that they did that kind of work totally by hand was instrumental to, you know, part of this effort that was in these war rooms. Along with that was the maps. They had a map room in which large maps were put on the wall. Mm -hmm. And they had, I don't think if anybody even tried to count the pinholes on these maps that they mm -hmm. could. There were so many pinholes. And they tracked movement. They tracked the movement of the British forces. Mm -hmm. And the German the forces. The German forces. Yeah. Any significant movement towards uh, Britain, they were very aware of. What interests me also was that there was activity in the Pacific Ocean. That was the and thing that stunned me is they were not only only tracking what was happening close by to England, but they were laying out activity across the entire planet almost, it seemed like, right? The, it was an entire world map yeah. that was on a 
large wall mm-hmm. and there was activity in every section of the map yeah. everything yeah i think about that old game battleship yeah you know where yeah. you're trying to track yeah. where the battleships are this would be that on steroids and it was just it was hard to take my eyes off of it mm-hmm. because you kept you would look at it closely and you'd see something that would catch your eye and you're like what happened here why on the Cape of Africa, you've got all this activity. And then, you know, you've got, then when I saw on the Pacific Ocean, yeah. there was actually German activity. It was something that was new to me. I didn't yeah. know that. And I kept wanting to know more about how did they know where all this stuff was? You know, how did they know where the enemy ships were and mm-hmm. the various oceans there and then where different troops were? And that that's among some of the things I wish we would have learned more about. Yeah. Um, Cause on the one hand, it was neat to see the fact that they did this. I wanted to know how did they do that? You right, know? So that's right. one of the things that I think there's more. It, to the there story. was just a very general mm-hmm. um, idea that it was through uh, radio communication yeah. and, and, and these maps also, you know, you saw the pins and they had this blue st- it was wool or something mm. of string mm-hmm. that would go from pin to pin. Yeah. So it was just something you literally would see from a World War II movie. Yeah. They also plotted the movement of their allies too, which would have been us. So the United States, America had certain sections that showed our activity mm-hmm. and what we were doing. Mm-hmm. That was also something that kind of pulled me in since we're American. Yeah, you know? yeah. the map room, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Another interesting area was the communications area. So this was one of the most important rooms in the bunkers, but mm-hmm. also one of the smallest. And Very this, small. Yeah. It was, so di- it was tiny. Almost like a closet size room was one that they rigged up so that Winston Churchill was able to talk directly to President Roosevelt and in complete safety without being eavesdropped on or you know, being spied upon. So there is a story about that, which is pretty fascinating to see as well. There was other areas. They had living quarters where some of the officers had stayed. They had uh, eating and gathering areas. Uh, some of the areas had depictions of some art that people had drawn. Mm. I can imagine that they're there for hours and hours and hours on end in these meetings. And, you know, you could see doodling mm-hmm. on certain maps and on certain pieces of, of the planning material that they use. So that was that was interesting, too. But this place was where they achieved victory, as yeah. Winston Churchill had said. That was his aim, and that's Mm -hmm. what was achieved. And he achieved it. Yeah, so, and when you go to the Churchill War Rooms, it's kind of divided, I mean, I remember this kind of like in two distinct sections. So you have the War Room section, which includes some of the things that we've just described, but then there's a separate museum section, Mm -hmm. which kind of takes you into learning more about the man Winston Churchill. So we spent some time after the uh, Cabinet War Rooms exploring the museum. I like the museum. It was small but i think they had a small space to work in it was digitalized a lot there was a lot of displays that had information with a lighted background and you would just read these timelines of winston churchill it Mm -hmm. was completely dedicated to winston churchill yeah and it went from his childhood Mm -hmm. through his time as prime minister through his time after that and the the fact he was an artist Mm -hmm. And he was uh, a man of many talents. Yeah, one of the things I learned that he, in 1953, was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for his Mm -hmm. mastery of historical and biographical description 
as well as for brilliant oratory in defending exalted human values. And he also had many, many paintings that he had done after he had retired. Mm -hmm. The museum had some of his smocks and his artist materials, and he produced over 500 paintings, preferring to paint in oils. Yeah, very prolific, huh? Very much so, very much so. And some of the paintings were on display, and he was very, very good. Mm -hmm. It was very talented work. He experimented with some sculpting, but he didn't really like it because the clay was too dirty for him. And he even wrote a book about painting called Painting as a Pastime. And he describes his passion for painting. And he said, when I get to heaven, I mean to spend a considerable portion of my first million years painting. So that might be what he's doing right Right now now. as we we speak here. (laughs) Let's talk about, you know, as we went through the museum and learned a little bit about Winston Churchill, we've also since then learned some more fun facts about the man. (laughs) So we'll share a couple of those with you. One that is of interest to me is relative to prohibition. So when we had prohibition happening in the United States, Churchill referred publicly the uh, constitutional amendment banning alcohol as an affront to the whole history of mankind. So he was not a fan of (laughs) that maneuver in the United States. He also popularized the term Iron Curtain. So despite his misgivings about communism, Churchill gladly allied himself with the Soviet Union during World War II. Afterwards, he began to harbor some serious misgivings about the Soviet Union. And in March of 1946, in a speech he spoke of an iron curtain that had descended across the continent. After that speech, there were many other speeches by different politicians and people of power that started using that term, Mm -hmm. iron curtain. Mm -hmm. This next one is kind of interesting. So Winston Churchill is the only prime minister, and I got to imagine maybe one of the only world leaders of note, to ever enter the music charts. So he, in fact, entered the music charts not once but twice. First in 1965, shortly after his death, there was a recording titled The Voice Of that had a collection of his most famous speeches. So this would have been The Voice Of Winston Churchill. And then he charted again for the second time with a record that marked the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, Reach for the Skies by the Central Band of the Royal Air Force. So he got in the music charts not playing an instrument or singing, but proclaiming the things that he proclaimed. Yes, I was just trying to imagine him doing some kind of oratory at a big event venue or something. And and I'm thinking, okay, I can hear him speaking because he had quite an yeah. interesting voice. Mm-hmm. But then I think, what would it be like if he started singing? And no. I can't even go there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so either. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, we should ask. So your, your brother is a massive record collector, and I think he's got, oh, at last count, what does he have? 35, 3,700 records? So, yes, yes. He always rubs it in that yeah. he has more than yeah. I do. <laughs> he has an entire room packed of vinyl records. We're going to have to find out if he has the greatest hits of Winston Churchill or not. He might. You never know. yeah. yeah. One of the other things about uh, Winston Churchill was that he is extremely, or was, extremely accident prone. Now, this is near and dear to me because growing up, I was told that same thing, that I was extremely accident prone. Mm -hmm. I can see why they said that, but I don't think I was as bad as Winston Churchill because he once suffered a concussion 
and a rupture of his kidney while playfully throwing himself off a bridge. I don't think I would have actually thrown myself off a bridge. I might have fallen, Mm. but I don't think I would have thrown. Uh, Later on, he nearly drowned in Swiss Lake, and he fell several times from a horse. He dislocated his shoulder while disembarking from a ship in India, and he crashed a plane while learning to fly and was hit by a car when he looked the wrong way to cross New York's Fifth Avenue. Oh, my. And that's kind of what we felt like in the UK. A little bit, we, except we didn't get hit by anything. We didn't we, get hit by anything, we but didn't. we were very frightened when we were leaving curbsides because yeah. we kept looking the yeah. wrong way. We did manage to stay out of hospitals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. I think he's lucky that he didn't live in the time of Saturday Night Live because they had known about these things. But when I think about what Saturday Night Live did to Gerald Ford. Oh, yes. Poor yes. President Ford. Yes. He was mocked yeah. terribly. That was yeah. terrible. Winston was lucky that this happened yes. a few decades before that TV show. But he did live until he was 90, mm-hmm. and he succumbed to a stroke. But he uh, had all these accidents without finding himself in any severe debilitating mm-hmm. state. So that's yeah. good. Nice long life. And now he's uh, painting up in heaven. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So a little bit of a recap of the war rooms in the museum. We spent two hours touring the facility and it was absolutely fascinating Mm -hmm. completely enjoyed it completely would recommend if you're in london to do this and with those accolades there on the table i also have to say this was one of the places that we visited to that as much as i enjoyed it there was more that i wanted to see and there's more that i wanted to know i kind of felt like we went through this place and i got part of this story and I didn't get as much of the story as I wanted to. A few examples for me, and I mentioned I think one of these, so like when we were looking at the data stuff, you know, I Mm -hmm. wanted to know more about the people who whose job it was to put that together. You know, who were they? How many of them were there? What was their day to day like? I'd like to know more testimonials from other people who would have spent time at this facility what were their impressions what was a day in the life of different Mm -hmm. people who would have spent time at this place and even with Winston Churchill would have liked to know more about his interactions with other world leaders and so while this was the the Churchill war rooms and it was very much focused on him it almost struck me as it was focused on him to the exclusivity of not bringing in more of the interactions that he would have had to have had, be it with Roosevelt, with some of the other world leaders. The other thing that came to mind, too, I think about something like the Enigma Code, which was a big part of ending the war. Mm-hmm. You know, Poland had a role in that. England had a role in that. And we walked away from this place, which on the one hand was this monument to this work that took place to end the war and i feel like that event you know the cracking of the enigma code didn't get its due and i almost expected to hear about it and see about it at this place maybe this wasn't the place for it but there there was just a lot of things like that that i wanted to know more i wanted to see different perspectives and i felt like i didn't get as much as my curiosity was was asking for I see your point, but I think that in such a small space, mm-hmm. I don't know how much information you could actually have or put in front of people that could get soaked up. Yeah. And, 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 I, think, I, and I think they consider that when they put out displays 
this also was specifically about this underground bunker. Yeah. And perhaps so. it would have been different if somebody was making a museum from scratch that wasn't at the actual location and space wasn't as much of a constraint. Yeah. Because these were the actual war rooms where they actually were located with the actual stuff. To your point, I mean, there was only so much room that they had mm -hmm. to work with. So so I'll give them kind of a pass, but, but I, you know, I still walked away with, uh, I wanted to know more. But you're a seeker of knowledge. That's, yeah. I mean, you do, you always want to know more. Yeah. I could look that up on my own now. But, you could. You know, but in the moment. It's nice in the moment when you have such great visuals to mm -hmm. look at mm -hmm. that it's followed up with that information that kind of completes it. Yeah. So one of the things that was a little rough on me is that we, we kind of got lost. Mm -hmm. It was a little confusing the way the layout was. And it's not because, I mean, the layout was as it was during the war, but there wasn't clear markings about, for me anyway, about once you got to a certain point, you're, fo you're following in from the gift shop and you're following in and you've, you've got a corridor to go down. And then as you're going through these corridors, some of them break off mm -hmm. and you really don't know which direction that makes it easy for you to go from room to room. Yeah, so there, that was a little confusing to me. Yeah, there was a few forks in the road where, where it yeah. wasn't clear. Do you go left? Do you go right? Do you go straight? Yeah, and the museum kind of shows up before, the entrance to the museum shows up before you're done with the tour for the underground bunker. Yeah. So we got real confused at that point. Is Are we supposed to go into the museum or is there more to the underground mm bunker and the war rooms I mean, we had to kind of wander a little bit to figure out yeah. what we were missing now i don't remember being handed a guide like you know kind of like a, a map I don't, I don't think so, so this would be one thing i think if somebody were to go there i would ask at the desk where you get your ticket if they have such a thing maybe there yeah. was something and we just didn't we either it. Yeah. get it Could or be. something but if you had something like that i think it would help just to make sure that you actually hit every place in right. the facility. I think we did, uh, we but, did. But, but we ended up, we, we backtracked yeah. several places just to make sure that we didn't miss anything. Right. Yeah. Who is this for? Who would enjoy yes, who would something enjoy that is about a world war? Well, anybody that is a fan of military history or enjoys reading and knowing about what happened during World War II specifically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in the British people, this is a great place to go. Yeah. For me, everything British fascinates me right now because when I did the DNA test and I found out that I am 56% British, that was quite a large chunk. So anything that is British, yeah. I'm drawn to. UK all the way for you, huh? UK all the yeah, way, especially yeah. Wales. The other thing I think about, so as you mentioned, you know, people who might have an interest in World War II, you know, we're getting toward the end of people who lived through that time of history right. yeah getting yeah. toward the end of their lives and mm -hmm. when i think about young people today they may have grandparents who have connectivity to that time to be able to connect the dots of people's own family history to what their part of the story was this is one of those ways that you can connect the dots if you're able to if you have the luxury of talking to elder family members who have part of the story to share you know by all means do so archive that memorialize it because 
you know, once their stories are gone, their stories are gone. They're gone. So, and we, we've been dealing with some of those. A lot of those, yeah. Missing pieces. Yeah. And then when you do have the opportunity to go to a place like this, it kind of helps to connect the things that you've heard about to the actual events of history that happened and where they happened. So it's kind of a neat way to kind of bring everything together, I think. Part of the response that we had after we came back from the UK was to kind of find things on certain uh, media that supplement, you know, what we saw. And one of the things we've been watching lately has been this, it's actually a reality show. It's, there's these five episodes and it's a reality show that you found. I think it was Netflix. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where other people would find it, but um, why don't you tell them you know, what that's about? Yeah, so, th- so this was called Churchill's Secret Agents, The New Recruits, and this was done in five episodes. I think each episode was just under an hour, so this was one of those things you could binge watch and kind of be done with it over the course of a weekend if you so chose. But what they did on this is they tried to recreate the training that some of the secret agents during Churchill's regime would have gone through to be part of these secret forces that would have been sent to other countries to do things to help aid England and their, you know, its allies in the war. And they went through the various training exercises that the candidates would have to go through. Now, these are people like you and me. These are just regular, ordinary, everyday people that stepped up to help their country. Yeah, everywhere from, you know, young, probably, you know, college students or college graduates all the way to grandmothers on, mm-hmm. on one end of the, mm-hmm. of the spectrum. And in part, they had to have people that could immerse themselves in different parts of society or other societies and just kind of fit in as regular folks. So mm-hmm. they needed people who were regular right. folk, but who could also handle weapons, do covert operations. Learn Morse code. Yeah. And if necessary, defend their life by killing another. Yeah. So if you want to see um, an an interesting show that's connected to the Churchill story without getting into a full-blown World War II movie, Mm -hmm. this is a, a little different take on an aspect of things that is connected to Winston Churchill. So... Yes. I enjoyed it. Yeah, because they're using modern day people right now and they're putting through that exact training that the people back in Churchill's time would have gone through. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very interesting. So some top tips for you on our trip to the Churchill War Rooms. Buy your tickets in advance online before you leave on your trip. When you buy your ticket online, you'll have a particular time slot that you will be allowed to enter into the museum and the war rooms. Don't get there any earlier than it says, because they are pretty tight about only letting you in at the time that your ticket says. But don't wait till the last minute either. There are two lines. Mm -hmm. There is a line for no ticket holder and a line for people that have bought their tickets in advance. And the no ticket line gets extremely long Mm -hmm. and you have quite a long wait the ticket line isn't as long but you might still have a wait if you arrive there you know you're thinking well i'll just get there 10 minutes before five minutes before and and i'm going to get straight in no you might not get straight in you might be waiting in a line at that point so don't wait 
to the last minute just because your ticket is timed. You do wait outside, so pay attention to what the weather is uh, while you're there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were there and it was a little rainy and cold, so we dressed appropriately for that. Um, So think about what that weather is, especially if you don't have a ticket because you're going to be sitting outside for a while. One of the things that happens when you get your ticket or you purchase your ticket is you get an audio guide with the ticket. We had received ours along with many others. And one of the things we noticed is that people have their audio guides, but they really either don't listen to it or they're shooting by all kinds of exhibits and information. And it seems to me that you're kind of wasting your time at that point because you're not really getting the full picture of what these war rooms are and what they were meant to be. Yeah, I kind of, I don't get that. You know, if you pay close to 25 pounds to get into the place, and if you're just walking by things and glancing at this and glancing at that, not listening to anything, not reading anything. I could see you come out of a place like this and... Um, you wouldn't get anything from it. Yeah. You, you would just see... I could see being disappointed and yeah. that's probably you know shame on you because yeah. you didn't take the time to immerse yourself in yeah. th- Those audios are history. well done. Yeah. They're well done yeah. and they are packed full of information. Yeah. And it just completes the whole circle. It's, I'm sure there's museums that have poor audios, but these audios were, were well done. Yeah, I agree. And so, so don't listen, pass that chance to, to really to get the audio. Yeah. And I believe they have it in multiple languages too. They do. Yeah. Within walking distance of the um, Churchill War Rooms is the Westminster Abbey. So we did both on that same day. Um, we're not going to talk about Westminster Abbey uh, right now. That's for another time on another podcast coming up. We did space our uh, entry times about three hours apart because we purchased online tickets for both these attractions. And it worked out well. So you can see both on the same day, but I suggest that you get online tickets for both. Yeah, so again, we spent two hours at the Churchill War Rooms, a fantastic step back in time to an era when the future of Britain and the future of the free world hung desperately in the balance, an amazing preservation of the items that are in this museum. Highly, highly recommended. You're going to see these underground headquarters look exactly as they did when the lights were finally turned off in the building in 1945. And that closes another adventure and another uh, tour of ours in the UK. Still more to come. We hope you continue listening to the podcast. If you enjoy them, give us a like on the podcast engine of your choice. And we will catch you next time with more adventures from London, England. Thanks for joining us on The Places Where We Go. If you have any comments or info to share with us, about travel, you can write us at comments at theplaceswherewego.com. You can also follow us on social media. Right now we're on Twitter and Instagram, both at The Places Where We Go. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you at The Places Where We Go. See you next time. Bye now.